Saturday, November 30th, 2013, in the city on the plains, also known as Auburn, city in the southern part of Alabama, that city is not a large city. It's a college town, except on football game days, it becomes the fifth largest city in the state because the stadium holds 85, 87,000 people. But when the University of Alabama comes to play, the city is filled with people, especially in 2013, Alabama was ranked number one and Auburn was ranked number four. In the final seconds of this game, it was a hard-fought battle, hard-fought battle. In the final seconds of this game, the score was tied 28 to 28. Everybody knew, okay, we're heading into overtime, except one man thought different. Nick Saban, head coach of University of Alabama. He goes up to the referees, and I believe the conversation went something like this. I think what he said to the ref was, excuse me, if you don't mind, would you please look back at the tape? Because when our guy stepped out of bounds, I think we had one second left on the clock. Would you mind double-checking that for me, please, and seeing if we've got another second? The refs reviewed the tape and they gave Alabama the ball back with one second left on the clock. Their kicking team came out on the field and that kicker was going to kick a 57-yard field goal, something this young man had not done before. And so Gus Melzon on the Auburn team, the Auburn head coach, he said to senior cornerback Chris Davis, now look, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but you go stand in the end zone and if that ball happens to come your way, catch it and just do something with it. The kicker kicked. The ball went up and up and up. Oh, it was a beautiful arc. It was a beautiful arc and it starts coming down and it starts coming down and it starts coming down right into the arms of Auburn Tiger Chris Davis. Nine yards back into the end zone and he takes off. He takes off and he breaks to the left and he's running down the side and every Auburn fan in the entire world is yelling, don't step out of bounds, don't step out of bounds, don't step out of bounds. And he hits the 50-yard line. He starts banking to the right, heading straight for the end zone. There is not a defensive man left to tackle him. I'm trying to hang a Christmas ornament on the Christmas tree with my right hand, yelling at the screen with my left hand, yelling at Steve, is this legal? Can he do this? Can this really happen? And Chris Davis heads into the end zone at the other end. Six points for Auburn. He's covered in blue and orange jerseys. People flood onto the field, 109 yards he ran that ball back, won the game for Auburn. Two days later, Chris goes into his chemistry class and gets a standing ovation. To this day, you can go to the city on the plains and buy a bumper sticker that says, hey, Bama, got a second? <laughs> there are some things in life that only happen once never to be repeated. Chris Davis will never have a play like that again. Auburn and Alabama will never have a game end quite the way that one did. In fact, I guess that in the history of football, we will never see a game end quite the way that one did. In our scripture this morning, we have something that only happened once that never needs to be repeated again. We need to look at the author of Hebrews and the original audience of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the Greek is the most sophisticated Greek that we have in the New Testament. 
And so it's not really a letter, it's not really a book, it's actually a sermon, or maybe a treatise, and most modern scholars believe that it's written by a Jewish Christian who is a scholar or a teacher. The level of, of the language is quite high and sophisticated. And we can understand from the context within the book that our audience was primarily Jewish Christians, meaning Jews who were devout Jews, devout practicing Jews who had come to follow Jesus Christ. And these Jewish Christians were facing persecution because of what they believed. And some of them were now starting to question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go through all of this persecution? Do I, do I stick with this new faith? And the author is saying, yes. Stick with this faith and let me tell you why. And in our passage, our author is comparing the old sacrificial system with the Jews, and in particular the Day of Atonement, with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. To understand the passage, we need to remember and recall that the most holy places, as it says in Hebrews, is referring to the Holy of Holies. Back when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them out of Egypt and they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, God designed for them a tent of worship. It was called the tabernacle. And within inside this tent, there was an extremely tall, very long, made from one piece of fabric curtain. And behind that curtain was a very small space, come to be known as the Holy of Holies, in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it was believed by the Jews that the very presence of the Lord lived within this Holy of Holies space. It was so holy that the high priest was only allowed to enter that space once per year. And that pattern continued after they were out of wilderness and the temple was built. They built a second Holy of Holies behind a large curtain. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. It was the Day of Atonement. A day when the priest would take sacrifice of an animal's blood, take it back to the Ark of the Covenant, and ask for blanket forgiveness for all the sins of all Israel, for all of the Jews. And this would happen once a year, only once a year, but it happened year after year. And the blood that was taken back was from an animal, and it was to ask for forgiveness for all of the Jews. What our author is comparing that to is to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That only happened once. And it doesn't need to happen again. And it was not the blood of an animal, it was Jesus' very own blood. And it was not for the forgiveness of sins of just the Jews, it was for the forgiveness of sins for the whole world. For all people, past, present, and future, for all time. And our author is saying, because it was once because it was Jesus himself, because it was for the whole world, makes this new covenant better than the old covenant. So the author is telling these people who are being persecuted, this is why it's worth it to stay with it. Because the new covenant is more powerful than the old. Because that sacrifice only happened once and it only needs to happen once, is why I refer to this, I try very hard to refer to it as the table, the communion table. I do not call it an altar by choice because we do not re-sacrifice Jesus Christ every time that we have communion. We celebrate, we remember, we meditate on Holy Communion, but we are not sacrificing Jesus again. So you may hear me refer to this as the table rather than the altar, and that's why I do that. 
That's why I do that. In both sacrifice scenarios, blood plays a role. In the old sacrificial system, it was the blood of a lamb, a blood of a ram, a blood of, of, of some type of animal. In the new covenant, it's Jesus' blood. And it's blood that connects these two covenants together. And it's that idea of Jesus' blood that is a very powerful image for some Christians. As we continue in our summer look at our favorite hymns, Melanie asked me to look at There's Power in the Blood. So I'm assuming that there's power in the blood means something to Melanie, that the idea of this blood imagery is powerful for her and as Christians. This hymn was written by a gentleman named Louis E. Jones. One source told me that it was written in 1889. Another source told me it was written in 1899. So either way, it was written in the last decade of the 1800s. He did not write hymns for a living. In fact, he actually worked for the YMCA and in fact, he actually worked at one time for the YMCA here in Fort Worth in 1915. He was here in Texas, in North Texas, in Fort Worth in 1915. This particular hymn, There's Power in the Blood, came to him, it came about because of a camp meeting at Mount Lake Park in Maryland. And he has been known to say that many of his hymns come to him because of a sentence or a line in a pastor's sermon. So let's imagine that. Place yourself at Mountain Lake Park in Maryland. You've just heard a fiery sermon, probably, an uplifting sermon in a camp meeting by a pastor, and you and, you and Lewis Jones are, are talking about it. You're talking about this sermon, and there's a couple of phrases that jump out at you, and one of the phrases that the pastor says that you take note of is wonder-working power. And so you write that down. You write that down, wonder-working power. And then there's another phrase that catches your attention. And Pastor Mowry said, power in the blood. And so the two of you are pondering these two phrases. And then you start to brainstorm. You start to brainstorm because you're saying, okay, the power of Jesus' blood is a wonder-working power, but what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? And you and Lewis Jones are going back and forth and you're brainstorming over what these phrases mean and what Jesus' blood does for us. And you come up with a few phrases. You come up with free from burden to sin. And then maybe Lewis says, oh, that's a good idea. How about, how about victory over evil? So you write that down. And you're still brainstorming. You're still tossing out ideas. And you know what? I feel free from passion and pride. That which is going to make me fall. I think that's what Jesus' blood does for me. And then maybe Lewis says, oh, that's a good idea. I, when I think of the power of Jesus' blood, I just think it's cleansing. It's very, very cleansing. And you know what? That makes me whiter than snow. That cleanse me, makes me whiter than snow. And then between the two of you, you come up with one final idea. And you know what? This power of Jesus' blood, it just wipes away sin. It just wipes away sin. And then the two of you sit back after your brainstorming session and you look at these phrases that you came up with. And then Lewis Jones says, I think there's a hymn in that. And he goes off and after this brainstorming session with you, he writes, there's power in the blood. And the phrases you came up to allude to what Jesus' blood means for you, what it does for you. Maybe that's how the hymn came about, something similar to that. 
in some way. The author of Hebrews is telling the people, this sacrifice, this new covenant with Jesus is very, very powerful. That's what the hymn is saying. And we're saying that it happened only once for the whole world. And that's why it's worth it. That's why we come today. But all this talk about blood and all this talk about sacrifice causes me to think, how do such passages, how do such images, and how do such hymns sound to people whose blood is failing them? For someone maybe who has leukemia or AIDS. Even Michael and Sherry went through last year a completely unknown reason as to why she's losing blood. They've even seen blood specialists. They still don't know. Now we've got Linda Jangula in a similar situation, not knowing what's going on with their blood. How do all these blood images sound to someone whose blood may not be as life-giving as the rest of us assume, who are going through a time in their life where when they think of blood, they think of disease, they think of harm. One of the things that happens at the Perkins School of Theology when school is in session is that they have worship twice a week on Wednesdays and Thursdays in the chapel. And it's a time for the professors and the students to experience different styles of worship. It's almost like a little lab where you can play and experiment with different types of worship. And sometimes the students or the professors come up with new liturgy, and by that I mean words that we use in worship. And one person made the comment to a professor, this idea of the blood language, well, how do people hear it who have difficulty with their own blood, who are suffering from some kind of disease? And one of the professors took it on to try and write a communion liturgy that did not refer to the blood of Christ. It's almost impossible to do. Even Jesus said the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. That's what's in the chalice. That's what Jesus holds up. My blood poured out for you. The blood of Christ and communion are just almost inseparable. You can't pull them apart. It's an image that can't be pulled apart. And so for some of us, that image is very tight and very powerful and very meaningful. But we need to be mindful for others that that image is almost an obstacle to faith. It's almost an image that says, this blood, well, it, it doesn't apply to you because for you, blood is harmful. Well, how do we rewrite that story so that the blood of the new covenant is a life-giving source rather than being attached to disease? And so a symbol that we use that, that, that can bring us comfort, that can bring us faith, that brings us some of our favorite hymns, to someone else could be an obstacle. So how do we tell the story of sacrifice, of love, of life being drained to the rest of us in a way that it brings comfort to even those who see it as an obstacle to faith? So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? I walk away from this Hebrews passage with the understanding that Jesus died on the cross once for all. That's the phrase in this passage, once for all. And when I first read it, it's, it's my southern idiom that says once and for all. I insert an and in there, once and for all, and it means done, that's it, that's enough, that's done, it's sufficient, done. 
But when I looked at it again, and I, okay, here's where I have to confess. I checked a lot of different translations. None of them say what I'm about to say. There's no scholar or commentator that has said this. This is just Katie's own personal read into three words. Okay, so take it for what it's worth. Once, comma, for all. Once for the whole world. Once for all people for all time. That sacrifice is sufficient for salvation. That's the phrase. Sufficient for salvation, meaning it's enough. We don't need anything else to bring us salvation. That's why we don't need to sacrifice Jesus again. That's why we can't. Because it's sufficient for the whole world, for all people, for all time. Lewis Jones, in this hymn, there's power in the blood. He said there's power in that blood for us to do service for Jesus in Jesus' name. And there's power in that blood for us to daily sing praises to the Lord. So here's what I want you to do. When you leave this place today, go with the assurance that Jesus' death on the cross was once and for all. It's sufficient. It's once for all people. For all time. That means for you. That Jesus' death upon the cross was for you. You are a part of that. But also know that it's the power of Jesus' blood within you that brings forth the urge for us to serve others. So when you go from this place, serve in Jesus' name and daily offer praises to the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.